and welcome to the second mini episode of Brits Abroad on 2020 Blood, Sweat and Tears. Today I'm speaking to Lottie, who is a PhD student and assistant teacher at a university in Switzerland. Thank you so much for joining me on 2020 Blood, Sweat and Tears for the international edition. Um, So you're currently living in Switzerland where you're working at a university, but you also live part-time in the UK. You have family here, partner here. So you've kind of experienced the the response by the governments and by the public in both places. How has the kind of contrasting experience been for you? Comparing comparing the approaches in Switzerland to in the UK, um, I think there is a tendency to perceive Switzerland as a country that is sort of together and doing it. But actually a lot of the friction, there is a sort of similar tension between the can, different cantonal approaches to it, like there is with the devolved nations definitely seeming to diverge from from the way in which Westminster or, or the Prime Minister wants to wants to approach things. So uh, this became most pronounced when just just in November the lockdown there was a second lockdown for the second wave just in just in the canton of Geneva. Already you could see blame being placed on some cantons for having higher numbers, but then the approach like they're trying to do more to like ease it as well. But so I think it's like in turn it, it, it makes sort of like um, regional differences and tensions between regions become more pronounced in the same way that I think they are in the UK. One of the major differences for for me compared with my friends back in London and in the UK was I was allowed to go and sit in the park um, on my own or with one other person like there were still rules around that but um, and I think because I live in a city um, and you know we all know how what European cities are like you don't have much outdoor space. So I think that there was a, an acknowledgement of that built into the response rather than the sense I had of the UK where it was it was decisions being made by people who don't live in high-rise flats without balconies. Laws being made by people with big houses and big gardens for other people with big houses and big gardens. Precisely. Like I would go and sit in the park every day. That became very, very important to how I sort of managed through the initial lockdown. But you work for a university, so... How do you feel the effect has been on you and the other members of kind of teaching and faculty staff, but then also on the for the students and their experience of how things have changed? So, so it's funny when you are a, a, a PhD student, a graduate student, so you kind of occupy that double status where you, yeah. you're, you are a student of the university, but you are also, you have responsibilities over other students as you're an assistant, assistant teacher, um, my work obviously was disrupted. My 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 actual thesis, the production, the sort of writing of my thesis was pretty terrible in in the initial lockdown. But um, uh, but teaching translated online. Obviously, it, obviously there are things that are lost in the transition process. But um, they're kind. Of, I think the thing, the main thing that came out of it was this kind of sense of like solidarity between teachers and students. That was like we're all in this together and we'll get through it together. And because of the sort of novel experience accompanying the novel coronavirus like there was kind of a a desire to 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 work together to make the best of of a of a of a bad and strange situation are people at the university definitely working from home or is there any in-person teaching or going into the office or anything like that so the reason the dates of the first lockdown are so ingrained into my head was because when they lifted it, there was an expectation to go back into work. And so oh, we're wow. all like, what? But we taught in person for the first month of the autumn semester, which felt, it did feel inappropriate in parts, 
but you do have to acknowledge that there are um, a lot of constraints on students working at distance, you know, just to have a space to go into that is different from uh, where they might live because work, working conditions at home aren't, aren't guaranteed, good working conditions at home aren't guaranteed. So there is a level of responsibility there, but it just felt inappropriate being in a classroom in October, especially I had a group, I had a class of 30 students um, in not a very big room. Um, and the regulations were, you know, sit at one metre, five, five, one and a half metres distance from one another in which case you could take your mask off, but we couldn't achieve that in our room. So it was people sitting quite close together with masks on. I would open the windows windows intermittently to ventilate, but anyway, and then we went back online in uh, Right, so in that lasted a November. month and then and then we're sent back online yeah. with the second lockdown. Exactly. This the frustration is that the question sort of a lot of us asked is why why when we knew we'd inevitably end up back online, did they put us back in the classroom? purely because it meant that we would have to transition again rather than have continuity from the start of term. Yeah. But I will say that I, you know, meeting students in person does help to build rapport in a way that you wouldn't be able to build from being online at the outset. So the way that universities and courses are put together, maybe you'll you'll know this better than me, but it doesn't, it's definitely not built in a way that's meant to be a remote experience, I don't think. So I guess it must have been a big adjustment. It definitely was. It definitely was a huge adjustment. Um, so much of teaching is dependent on the sort of um, in-person feedback, responsiveness of the students um, f- as a teacher, but also building rapport. I'm I'm in the humanities, so you know a seminar is a space for people to discuss things together, and if you're it, the slight lags and and the sort of technological limitations of Zoom. So yeah, it doesn't translate. I don't lecture, but for for the professors who lecture, once they've given those lecture once those lectures once, why can't the university just uh, seize them as their own intellectual property and do away with the professors themselves? Is that is that something that people in the kind of academic community are worried about? I think it is no. It's a. It definitely is a a real concern. Um, definitely amongst like the the univer the sort of um, associations which are sort of um, you know university uni- union bodies. That's definitely like high on their their list of concerns about what what the turn to to um, online learning could could pose a threat for. Um, I mean, I made a real point not to record any of my seminars because I want the seminar space to be one of discussion and you don't want to feel like you're being listened into or policed in that way that I think recording does that is the most direct equivalent of the in-person classroom isn't it if a student is sick and they can't come to class yeah they don't catch up through through a recording of it in a non-pandemic year so I wanted to reproduce the conditions as best as possible when you when you left the UK in February how long were you expecting to be away for compared to how long you were away for? And how, how did you find it, especially, you know, like you said, living on your own? So it's funny because I expected to come back really, really soon, like um, for Easter. The one joke I made quite early on was um, it took three years in a global pandemic for any of my friends to ring me on the phone because, oh. you know, pr- before the pandemic, 
before the pandemic, I'd see my friends when I was in yeah. the UK, or I'd see, or you know, it would be as and when. Um, so I probably, I probably spent more quote unquote time with my with my friends in the UK this year than any other year, despite it being a year in which I was stuck in another country for a mm. for a long period of time. Yeah, I definitely found that as well. I think I have spoken and been in more regular contact with my friends this year. Um, but I think there's something so strange about everyone going through the same experience and it's such a weird one. And you just, it just, for me anyway, it just made me want to speak to friends and family and catch up with people and like have that human contact and then I think and then once we were able to go out a bit more and meet people I've never been for so many walks with friends in the park and things like that ever before which is actually has been a real like unexpected pleasure. Do you feel like you're not re-evaluating the friendships you're just sort of re-evaluating the sort of medium or context in which like friendships take place because it's like not going out for dinner, not going out for yeah. drinks. The essential thing about a friendship is not based around those things. Mm. Yeah, it strips it all away. And I think there's something to be said for the simple simple pleasures and just going for a walk and having a chat, which has been really nice. Yeah, it becomes not about, like, I'm trying to make it not sound cheesy, but, like, all the distractions are stripped away and it is just, like, being with your friends or your yeah. family or your loved ones. the government's approach been to things like financial support for businesses and individuals and things like that because I feel like it's something in the UK that has not been without its share of controversy how's it been in Switzerland in Switzerland you have a specific kind of insurance that you're paying alongside um, the equivalent of national insurance so if your employment is affected chômage is 80% of your of your salary, which is obviously good, and it creates continuity, and that is something which precedes the pandemic. Right. That's how it's always been structured. But obviously, that de- is dependent on you having had a salary and having been in in employment. I mm-hmm. think that the Swiss equivalent of universal credit is not a good system, um, from what I understand of it. It's not a friendly approach. I think that that I think it's important to remember that when we see sort of on Twitter tweets about what um, unemployment salaries are for people in Switzerland compared with in the UK um, because Switzerland is one of those countries which is high up. It sounds like they had a ready-made furlough scheme basically that people have been paying into and contributing to for a while so that's kind of I imagine a good safety net for the government so it's not costing them so 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 much more money that they just have to find from somewhere aka borrow in the same way but then with an with an equally or maybe similarly um, challenging benefit system for the unemployed, long term unemployed, unable to work kind of population. Precisely, not getting the same support. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's um, it's kind of that fiscal conservatism, but kind of like free market liberalism that the country is sort of like based and founded on. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me on the podcast. And thank you for listening. Join me and our final Brit Abroad tomorrow for the season finale of 2020 Blood, Sweat and Tears.